All right. The message is entitled, The Apostleship of Paul. This is part two of our series. We began last week. Um, Paul, the apostle, was God's chosen vessel, as we saw, for his glory and purpose. In that first study, we looked at the results of Paul's transformed experience on the Damascus Road. There in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 31, it revealed his conversion, his commission, and his consecration. Those three things are imperative for your life as well as mine. There is no exception. If you're a Christian, you had a point of conversion. You've been commissioned by God to do something in the body of Jesus Christ, and you are called to live a consecrated life. Totally different. Now, this gave us a good view of his radical transformation from a zealous persecutor of the church to a zealous ambassador of Christ. Stop and think of what God brought you from, out of what you used to do. Right now, I would be rolling in home and when I was in the world, if I came home. Uh, for two, three days, I've been partying, working hard at dying, but I called it living. Um, I was committed in the world to sin, all right? It came natural. And now, Christ saving a person in July of 73, he changed my life radically. My friends just couldn't believe it. And yet, nothing happened to me that was new. The same thing that happened to Paul happened to me as well as to you. This is the greatest miracle that God ever does. When God changes the heart of a man or woman from being a child of disobedience and wrath to being a son or daughter of God motivated by his love. Radical. Instantly. You don't need to go four years to college to become a Christian. It's instant. By grace through faith as you call upon him, as you agree with what he says about you. When you uh, Have you ever noticed how men are so impressed with titles and parading them, their achievements? Often as um, they are introduced, uh, the most honorable, reverend, and respected pastor, teacher, doctor, so-and-so, conference speaker, author, world-renowned evangelist, and of course, humble. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing to me. Um, you come up to me and you ask my name, I tell you, I tell you it's Xavier or call me X, one of the two. I am just like you, like any other person. And uh, people get so caught up in their titles and their positions, and um, Jesus spoke completely against it. Always. We have to remember where we came from. Um, Paul now, the apostle, had, um, as you know, qualifications prior to coming to Christ that he could have used for his benefit in the Jewish community. Yet he never did use them to affirm any authority. In fact, he counted them as a pile of fertilizer of manure in Philippians 3.8. In fact, in that text, when we get there, it really says, if I use this, it really hurts me more than it helps me before God. Now, those things can help you before man. They get impressed over you. I did this, I did that, I got this PhD, I got this, that, whatever. But before God... To be justified, they really add to your hurt because you're saying the blood is not sufficient and you spit in God's face and you say, my stuff's better. Whoa. Amazing. 
And so, let's focus on Paul's apostleship from three vantage points. First, Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ. Second, Paul the apostle by the will of God. And thirdly, Paul the apostle for eternal life. These three vantage points will give us a good um, overview of his life as apostleship. Let's begin it with Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostle had two names, as you know. The name Saul, Saulos, appears first, which means ask, request, or pray in Hebrew and also in the Greek. Prior to the Damascus conversion, as you know, he was asking for letters from the Pharisees and the religious rulers to destroy the church there in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, as we saw. At his conversion, interesting, he asked Jesus the first thing out of his mouth, what would you have me to do? And Jesus said he was a chosen vessel for him, and he would bear his name to Gentiles, kings, and to the children of Israel there in Acts 9, 6, and 15. Paul was a go-getter. As zealous as he was to kill Christians, now he was just as zealous to convert people to Christianity. The same fervency that you lived in the world, is that the same fervency that you are living Christ? It should be. The very same way, if not more. Paul acknowledged that as a man, he owed his existence to a creator. But more than that, now on the Damascus Road, his name was Jesus and he was Lord. His eyes were open. Now the name Saul was used to identify the apostle even after his conversion until God by his Holy Spirit called out Barnabas and Saul for the mission field in Acts 13, 1 through 3. It says that they were there, prophets and teachers uh, ministering to the Lord. He says, and the Spirit uh, says, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry which I have called them. He is mentioned by name Saul two other times in the first missionary journey. Then when they sailed to Paphos, to Perga, the name now is Paul in Acts 13, 7, 9, and 13. So he begins as Saul, then it goes to Paul. Now he is always called Paul from that point on, but also the order of the names change. No longer is it Barnabas and Saul, but Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13, 43, 46, and 50. God is the one who calls. God is the one who puts people in positions. It isn't a competition. It isn't I'm better than you. It's what, God, what has God called me to do? And what does God want to do here? The secret of any ministry is simple. Be exactly what God has called you to be and do, and you're not in competition. Every member on staff here, we're not in competition. We thank God for each other. We don't think one's better than the other. You know, if you need to walk, your foot's the most important at that time. If you need to grab something, your hand kind of does the job, Right? If your hands are full, you have to open a door. Your rump will have to do, okay? So it all depends, right? But you don't exalt yourself. This is what happens in ministry or anything else. People start 
the pecking order and they just destroy what God wants to do. The one who had led Paul to the disciples in Jerusalem, Barnabas, and sought him out for the work of the Gentiles at Antioch was now being led by Paul. Acts 9, 26 through 30, 11, 19 through 26. But this is God's doing. This is all good. So then you have the name Paul, Paulos. It appears as the second, and it means little or small. The word comes from the derivative of the verb paus, which means to pause, stop, restrain, or to come to an end. Tradition tells us that Paul was a man of small stature, um, just what the Greek implies. We have no real description, though there are some. Uh, there's one that says that Paul was a very short, ball-headed, uh, one unibrow, a hook nose, and bow-legged. Now. If that is true, you know that people didn't come to Christ because he was a handsome pastor. All right? Too often today, people are glowing in the vessel, the man. Too many pastors are celebrities. They're, they're looked up as something divine, something that is above the person. Listen, the pastor is a creep just like you. Sinner. Saved by grace. So you have to, I'm not against testimonies, but when you exalt the testimony and that's what leads the church, it's built on sand. Not on Jesus Christ. So you have to be real careful. Now the title apostle speaks of his office. The word comes from two words. The word stello, which means equip, arrange, or to prepare. And the other one is apple, which means away from. So the word becomes a technical term for an ambassador of a country or king communicating his office and delegated authority to the act on behalf of the one who sent him. So you as a parent send your son to go get some milk. You sent him. He's an apostle. You send him out, okay, to go get some milk. He's going on your behalf. The word is used in two ways in Scripture. First, a messenger, an ambassador of God. 1 Corinthians 9.1 and Galatians 1.1 is a couple of the passages. And in 1 Corinthians 9.1 it says, uh, Am I not an apostle? He's writing to the Corinthians. Am I not free? Have I not seen Christ Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So... Sent out by Christ. The second way is a messenger and ambassador of the church. Philippians 2.25 is a good passage. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Remember Epaphroditus went to help Paul and he got sick. He almost died. He says, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger, Apostolos, and the one who ministered to my need. So you're sent out by Jesus Christ in the victory, or you're sent out by the church for different things. That's the way it's used. Now, the word apostle is used in a variety of categories. You have the 12 apostles chosen by Jesus Christ after an entire night in prayer in Luke 6, 12 through 13. Okay? The 12, the dirty dozen. They're unique. No one liked them. One of them betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot. The requirement was twofold, to be present with Jesus from his baptism 
And to be with Jesus as he was taken up, seeing him after the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Those are the requirements for one of the twelve. Okay? Then there's the seventy. As you know, they were sent out by Jesus Christ by twos in Luke 10.1. Then there's the apostles after Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, such as Barnabas, Epaphroditus, Apollos, Silvanus, which is Silas, Andronicus, Junia, just to mention a few, Romans 16.7 and 1 Corinthians 8.23. So this is the three categories that you see apostles, the 12, the 70, and then those after the ascension and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The common identity of Paul is his salutation. It was apostle. Now many today want to claim that title in the church today. You have the extreme Pentecostal movement that this is an apostle, this is a prophet, this is a prophetess, and they get up and say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord told you to give me $500, the Lord told me you're going to marry me, whatever. Right. Okay? There's no such office for today. In a technical and basic way, we are all apostles. We're all sent out in the Great Commission. Okay? But there's no apostolic authority like the 12, the 70, or the ones after the resurrection. Is that clear? Usually it's claim for people to revere them, to honor them, and to exalt them, have them on a higher level than the average person. That's not to be. Now, that common identity of Paul, as you look through the word, especially in the salutations of the apostle. The only exception where Paul does not call himself an apostle in the salutation is in four epistles. Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. The only four. The Old Testament prophets and modern-day missionaries are form of apostles. In other words, the prophet was to be the mouthpiece of God for God Yahweh in the Old Testament to the people. Usually, they weren't of the priesthood or the prophetic order. They're just common people called out because the priesthood, uh, the priesthood, the kings, and the people had become so corrupt that even like Amos, he was a fruit picker and a sheep breeder, okay? And he was sent out. The primary function and responsibility was to speak forth the word of God as a mouthpiece of God, calling the people to repentance and to pay obedience to God's word. Secondary... As a prophet, they reveal some future things or judgment. That was the secondary. The majority of their words were called to repentance. All right? Now, an apostle was the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ to preach and to teach the word of God. All right? And so, we have been called to proclaim the gospel. And once people are saved, is to instruct them and to teach them as the purpose of the church in Ephesians Chapter 4. Now, Paul called himself often an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because it's important whose apostle you are. Okay? He never called himself one of the twelve. It's important that you understand this. Um, he didn't meet the requirements of Acts 1, 21 and 22. He wasn't with Jesus from the baptism. Though he did see him resurrected, okay? For three years, he was discipled by Jesus in Arabia, Galatians tells us, okay? So he didn't meet the first requirement. 
um, he called himself an apostle to the Gentiles in Romans eleven thirteen. He called himself a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth in 1 Timothy 2, 7. And he told the Corinthians, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in Christ in 1 Corinthians 9, 2. Paul understood he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he never considered himself inferior to the twelve apostles. Though he didn't claim to be one of the twelve, he didn't think himself inferior to the twelve. And this is important. Um, he declared the signs of an apostle were accomplished in him. In signs, in wonders, and in mighty deeds in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 through 12. He said he was behind in nothing of the most eminent or chief apostles, though he was nothing in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians twelve eleven. He confidently declared that none of the apostles added anything to him. I like Paul. Galatians one six. See, there are always people who, because they start out with somebody, they've been there a little longer, they kind of think they're a little better than you. This happens throughout church history, every movement, every denomination, whatever it is. You know, everybody started with Pastor Chuck in the late 60s and on, and everybody started the same, and then pretty soon uh, the pecking order begins. No different, right? Fungus among us. That's just the way it is. He says he was one born out of due time, not worthy to be called an apostle, having persecuted the church in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9. So though Paul did not think himself worthy, he didn't think himself inferior to the 12, yet he knew he was not one of the 12. Some people teach that Paul was the substitute, the 12, for Judas Iscariot, but he doesn't meet the requirements. He never claimed it himself. Very, very important. He was a representative and ambassador of Jesus Christ, sent out throughout the world, thoroughly equipped. God equipped him. Appointed a preacher and an apostle, he declares in 1 Timothy 2.7. The name Jesus, as you know, indicates his humanity, his earthly existence as a man. It is the Greek name of the Hebrew translation, Joshua. Joshua is the contraction, or the full name of the contraction, Yahweh Shua, which means Jehovah's salvation, or Yahweh's salvation. So the name Jesus means Yahweh's salvation. Matthew, fulfilling the Emmanuel, God with us, he shall save his people from their sins. Makes it very, very clear. Now, the title Christ, the flip side, is indicative of his prophetic office, the anointed of God, the Old Testament concept of Messiah. The God who became man to redeem man sent Paul out to preach the gospel in order to save man. But we, we agree with God who we are, okay? You see, God looks... And declares the truth to us, though we don't like it. We soften who we are. Okay? 
God said in the Old Testament, every woman who, uh, who is not found a virgin at her wedding has played the whore in her father's house. We're appalled. That's what God says. We said, no, well, she was just a nice girl. She made a mistake. God said, you don't agree with me? You see, we look at things differently. Your son and your daughter gets in trouble and you're after them. And you get pretty strong with them. Do you do it because you hate them? Or do you do it because you want to see them turn? I don't need to push it any further. We agree with God, ladies and gentlemen. We're not good. We're good for nothing. I must agree with God. If there's any hope for me. The following ad occurred in a London newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness. Constant danger. Save return? Doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. The ad was signed by Sir Ernest Shackleton, Antarctic explorer. Thousands responded instantly to the call. They were ready to sacrifice all for the elation of adventure and uncertain honor. Should we as God's servants do any less? Is your life as passionate for the Lord as it was for sin and for self? Paul demonstrates in his life it was. Each of us as believers should be what Paul's name means and indicates, little or small, before God and man. For the simple reason that we have nothing to boast about, for we all have uh, fallen short of God's glory. And everything we have, we have received, as Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? Everything that's good out of my life, God gets all the credit and glory. All the bad stuff, it's all mine. Wow. Every believer is sent out as an ambassador with this, mesh, with this treasure in this earthen vessel, Paul tells the Corinthians. That the excellence of the power may be of God, not of ourselves, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But this vessel must be broken. The problem is we love this vessel to be enamored. We love people to say, oh, isn't he godly? You know, a certain way they says, God. The way he turns his Bible. How he walks in the stage and then he ponders a little bit. Oh. You know, we, we love. Look at me. Look at now we don't want to look at you. God wants to be transparent so that we don't detract from the message of Jesus. So that you see Jesus when the word of God goes out. That you turn to Jesus, not the pastor, not the elders. We're here to pray for you. We, we're here to do whatever we can. But it's to Jesus that we point people to. No one else. All believers need to keep a level head about their own importance regarding the kingdom, remembering the words of John the Baptist to his disciples when they were concerned because everybody was going to Jesus. And John said, I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase, John 3.30. That's a great verse. Memorize it. Every day I have to decrease. Every day the old man wants to increase. Spiritual warfare. You want to be my disciple? 
deny yourself. Before you even pick up your cross, deny yourself. Lose out of yourself. Then you can pick up your cross. What cross? The cross that God has called you to. Not his cross. His cross was fulfilled. Your life, whatever he called you to. All of us need to know that it is Jesus who enables us for everything. Listen to this. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 1, 12-14. Paul never forgot who he was. He didn't live in the past. But because he never forgot who he was, he understood the grace of God and was so appreciative that everything he was was because of what Christ did. And his compassion and mercy and grace for blotting out everything he had done and everything he had been. Wow. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul the apostle by the will of God. Paul clearly states throughout the scripture that he did not call himself to be an apostle based on his own human credentials. This is important. A lot of people today that, that, that uh, call themselves to the ministry and they start a ministry through all marketing principles and church growth principles and, and they can do some impressive things, but the only problem is it's their church, not the church of Jesus. And whatever you have to strive to attain, you have to strive to maintain. It's important that you know that your pastor was not, did not call himself. God called me. This was not my idea. I didn't sacrifice anything. I don't get a lot of people say, well, I was this, I could have rich, and I got... No, 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 no. As if God, they did got a big favor. No. I gave up hell and death. That's all I gave up. But I did not call myself. And it's important that you understand that, but most important, it's important that I understand that. If a person, a pastor, does not know that God called him to start a church, to be the head of the church where he's at, then woe to the people. And the sooner a man knows he's not called, the better off the people are. And himself, because greater judgment. Very important. I have done nothing in this ministry. I've done what God has called me to do, and he's done the work. I've done absolutely nothing. Everybody on staff is more surprised at what's happened than you guys. Absolutely. Paul clearly states through the scripture that he did not call himself. Though he had credentials, he didn't use them. Paul, as a Hebrew, was well qualified, as you know. He could boast in his flesh in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of David, tribe of Benjamin, mighty warriors, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, Pharisee, legalist to the letter. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning righteousness, which is from the law, blameless, smoked his contemporaries. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted laws for Christ. The word laws there means they were really destructive to me. They added to my hurt. Because none of those things could make me just before God. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, manure, excrement, that I might gain Christ. 7 and 8. 
Wow. Stop and think of just the instant transformation that took place in Paul's mind and heart. The same as you. Before you were born again, couldn't figure it out. The instant you're born again, you've got answers that you never had before. By the grace of God. Paul was born in Tarsus, as you know, and without doubt attended the university and the school of, of uh, philosophies and everything. He's grounded in Greek culture. He was also taught at the feet of Gamaliel. Acts 22, verse 3 and 4 tells us that. Um, he, um, um, he couldn't find enough books for Paul, Gamaliel. So he was schooled both in Greek culture and the Hebrew culture. He was a Roman citizen there in Acts 22, 28 through 29. And at times he used his passport, other times he didn't. It depended on what God wanted him to do. It was all God's will. Now Paul, um, countless of times throughout the scriptures, declares that his call to be an apostle was the revelation of God's will. And so that was important because as he was writing and sending people out, he was saying, this is not my doing. This is not, I'm not the big hotshot. This is God that's directing and guiding his church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the authority of Satan. And so, the word will means one's intent, choice, inclination, desire, or pleasure. It is used of what one wishes or has determined to be done. When you get out of here, you're going to go. You say, well, I, I want to have in and out. That's your, you, know, you, you exercise your will. Express your desire and then you go fulfill it. It is used of the purpose of God to bless mankind through Christ, through no one else. It is used of what God wishes to be done by us, the believer. By the way, his will is found in the word of God. Not in you closing your eyes, opening the Bible and going, okay, that's for today. No. It is used of commands, precepts, to be obeyed by the believer. His will. Now the occasion was on his personal mission to bring back to Jerusalem those Christians who had fled to Damascus when um, his conversion, commission, and consecration took place there in Acts 9, 1 through 31. All of a sudden, what he believed was God's will to kill Christians, he realizes wasn't God's will at all. All of a sudden, divine light just opened up his understanding. Paul says he was called to be an apostle separated to the gospel in Romans 1, 1. He says he was called an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God in 1 Corinthians 1, 1. In that same uh, text, remember he's addressing spiritual teenagers, the Corinthians, who were rebellious, thinking they knew it all. Paul says he was an apostle not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father in Galatians 1, 1. He says that it pleased God to separate him from his mother's womb and call him through his grace in Galatians 1.15. He says he was an apostle by the will of God in Ephesians 1.1, Colossians 1.1. An apostle by the command of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope in 1 Timothy 1.1. 1, 1. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 1.1. An apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of truth which is according to godliness in Titus 1.1. It's all over the New Testament. Paul wanted people to know that it was God's will who had called him to be an apostle. Of the eight introductions that Paul mentions his apostleship, four are declared to be the will of God. Once again, the will of God is found in the Word of God. Not our emotions, not our feelings, not the circumstance. Now, Paul consistently reveals, as well as the reminder of Scripture, that the will of God is twofold, such as the absolute will of God that cannot be thwarted, altered, or hindered. Okay? That's one aspect of God's will. The judgment of the days of Noah would not be altered. The deliverance of the throne of Israel from Egypt would not be altered. The reign of David would not be altered. The Babylonian captivity would not be altered. The birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ would not be altered. The coming of the Antichrist will not be altered. The coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming, will not be altered. Absolute will of God. Nothing can change that. It will take place. But then you have the will of God that is responded to and does not affect the overall absolute final plan of God. So you need to see God's will in twofold. The top level is the absolutes that cannot be altered that will take place and then the people that are involved in these things that have absolute freedom to make decisions but their freedom never alters these things. It affects and alters their life and others but not the ultimate will of God. Are we clear on that? All right? Now, if you're a Calvinist, you're writing me off right now. Okay? Because you cannot allow the free will of man. But if you cannot allow the free will of man, then that means we're all robots. And when I swing this hand, it was predestined. Really? Every rape, predestined. Every murder, predestined by God. Now, that's not the God of my Bible. Think about it. So, the will of God that is responded to, that does not affect the overall absolute final plan of God. The obedience of each person to his word to live in fellowship with God. You decided to come to church this morning. You weren't forced to come. You had free will before you were saved, and you have free will after you're saved. The disobedience that will destroy individual lives if not turned from, will not alter the final and ultimate will of God. But it will affect yours and others. The instant one's own will over God's revealed will is insisted upon and God gives it to us. It affects us, not his plan. Remember Hezekiah? Isaiah 38? God told Isaiah, go tell him to get his house in order. I'm going to take him home. I'm going to take him to heaven. And Hezekiah cried like a little girl. 
So God said, okay, let him go back telling me that's 15 years. Now, if you're a Calvinist, what do you do with that? God just altered his will. <laughs> would to God Hezekiah would have gone home. In those 15 years, King Manasseh was born to him, the most evil king. And by the way, he repented in prison in Babylon, and God forgave him and restored him. But the lesson is there. If he wouldn't have cried like a little girl, he would have just, God would have taken him home. Did it affect God's ultimate plan? Nope. Did it affect Hezekiah? Yep. Did it affect Manasseh? Yep. Did it affect the people of God? Oh, yeah. Wow. The revealed will of God for a call for service. God has called you to do something, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know what that is. You go to him. But you will affect yourself, your family, your children, others around you. It will not affect the ultimate will of God or plan of God. I heard Billy Graham himself say one day that he knew that he was God's second man. That the ministry God gave to him, I believe he said it was a Canadian. And he knows that. See, if you don't want to be used, God will get somebody else. He's not biting his nails, trust me. But it will affect you and others. But not the ultimate plan and will of God. Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park gets its name from the fact that unlike other geysers, as you know, it follows a, a dependable time schedule. We were there one time and we saw it and it's an incredible sight. Once every 65 minutes, it shoots a stream of boiling water over 170 feet into the air. Right on time. Like an alarm clock. So was the will of God in Scripture. Consistent. Dependable. Absolutely, God is trustworthy. The believer is assured that God's will is that each saint have at least one spiritual gift that's sourced in God for the edification of the body of Christ. And God will direct each person in those gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The one gift is spoken about in 1 Peter 4, uh, 9, 9 or 10. And uh, so you at least have one gift. You probably have more than one gift, all of us. But my gift is for you. Now, I benefit from the years of studying, but it's for you. Every time I come, so you grow, so you learn, so you look to the Lord. Not look to me, but you look to the Lord. As I teach, you are learning how to study. Okay? And it's amazing how God has raised so many teachers up in this ministry, both in the men and the women's ministry. You're solid, you're grounded, you look to the Lord. So your gift is for the rest of the body. This hand has never served itself. It served the rest of my body. My foot. So whatever part you are, just do what God has called you to do. It'll edify the rest of the body. The believer needs to know that the word of God reveals the will of God, revealing the things of God to us, which produces faith and causes us to trust God for what he promises, as 1 Corinthians one twenty one says. So, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10.17 says. That's why we study. 
That's why we meditate. That's why we go through the word of God. So God can direct and guide us. The Bible tells us that the will of God is that we be sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. To as many as believe in him, gave you the authority to become the children of God. In John 1.12, uh, the new birth that Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You were born in your mother's womb, now you need to be born from above. Your mother's womb was the earth. From above is the spiritual. Okay, Both are necessary. If, you can't, if you're not born into the world, you can't be born again. But once you're born into the world, you must be born again. Or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And so, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, either you believe those things or you think they're just nice little spiritual things to say. Okay? But if you don't believe them as God's revelation of absolute truth, then you will compromise it. You will water it down. You will play with it. The epistle of Peter tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance in Second Peter 3, 9. For that reason, we pray for non-believers. We pray for our family member. We pray for those that the Lord opens the door for because we don't want to see them perish. We were lost one time. We know what will happen the men or person takes their last breath. They will be instantly present and eternity separated from God without any opportunity to be saved again. We understand that. Therefore, as Paul, we are the ones sent out to the lost world by the will of God, the Great Commission. All of us. It's not the great suggestion. It's the Great Commission. That's why we go. So Paul was the apostle by the will of God. Third, Paul was the apostle for eternal life. The apostleship of Paul was in relationship to um, the promise of life in Christ Jesus. This life speaks of a quality, the quality of life that's promised to the believer. There are apostles of men of mere physical life endowed to them by their creator. You have many schools of thought, discipleship programs, everything else that are not Christian-based. And people follow a lot of them. They give up everything. They, they do and submit themselves to things that are just atrocious, but, but they're disciples of men. Um, their lifestyles may be based on asceticism, legalism, ritualism, or whatever it may be. And their lives may be lived out in isolation at times from the world, wanting to escape the world and the influence of the world. Now, in principle, we understand that, but we don't isolate ourselves. You know, the monastic order that came out of the third century through the Catholic Church, you know, to go out in monasteries or caves and just be out there contemplating your navel, it doesn't, it doesn't help you. Where, where's the Great Commission? Thinking that, that you're going to become more holy. No, you're taking the problem with you, you. Okay? When you go in that cave, that monastery, you're going to lust. You're going to have bad thoughts. Because the problem's inside your heart. All right? So it's a false sense of humility and an erroneous perception of how it is we can do what God has called us to be. Not in isolation, but in being permeated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Insulated. 
So we live in the world, but not of the world. The boat belongs in the water. It's when the water gets in the boat that the boat gets in trouble. Right? The perception, for the most part, is that God is pleased with them as they live in isolation, meditating upon God. Well, what good are you? It's all about you. It's a very self-centered focus. They're apostles of Jesus Christ with spiritual life. That's the other side. Endowed to them by their Heavenly Father. This life is a gift of God, as John 3.15 says, as He gave His Son. This life is undeserved in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, grace through faith, not out of ourselves. This life is in union with God, justified in Christ Jesus, having peace with God, Romans 5, 1 and 2. This life is related to the new birth that Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 8, born from above. This life is evidence of being a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that everything you ever did, everything you ever were, it's passed away. And now you think, you live in a way that you never did before. Wow. New. This life is proclaimed through the gospel. That's, that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God to salvation, the Jew first and the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith, according to Habakkuk 2.4. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Powerful. This is the only hope for you, the only hope for me, the only hope for mankind. Progressivism is forward to destruction. Progressivism may give you knowledge of computers and all that, but spiritually, morally, and ethically, it's full destruction. Follow just the history of our nation and progressivism. The universities are the training camps for progressivism. Mao took all those books out and sent them to re-educational camps. Now China is into capitalism because they saw that that didn't work. The United States, we've done a reverse. We set the re-educational camps first, your universities, public education. Now you have the crop from it, the harvest, atheistic, agnostic, materialist, self-centered, immoral, unethical, haters of family, living for self. Wow. What a master plan. The apostleship of Paul had a name to communicate the promise of eternal life. The promise first and foremost speaks of a quality of life. God-like life. 1 Timothy 4.8 speaks about that. So when you think of eternal life, first think of a quality. God-like life. That's how the Bible refers to when it says eternal life. Secondly, it speaks about a quantity of life. One that never ends. 2 Timothy 1.10 But primarily it's first quality. Christ-like life, secondly, one that never ends. The minute you die, you're instantly present. You are given eternal life once you repent. It begins here, it continues there. The promise is to those who hear and respond in obedience to the gospel through the forgiveness of their sins, through grace, by faith, 
to the message of the gospel. The only hope for this world. The only hope. There's no other hope. And if you are the head of your home, make sure you're the head, you're not the tail. That you are the head of your home, being the high priest, praying, living, bringing your family to church, and directing and guiding their steps and warning them and correcting them and bringing consequences. God will hold you responsible. How many parents have not been the parents in the home and have given their children up to the world? They compromise, so the children become greater compromisers. Your children can always turn away, but God help you if it's because of you. You be a lighthouse, you stand fast, you stand tall, and you warn them all the way, if need be, to their death. But you do not be quiet. You do not just remain silent. The apostleship of Paul and the promise of life is in Christ. This is important. Not in Buddha, not in Krishna, in Christ. The phrase speaks of a person's position before God, justified, sanctified, and one day glorified. It is the key phrase to the epistle of Ephesians, in Christ, in the heavenlies, all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. According to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1. Now, the phrase speaks of the only way um, to God. Now, this is difficult. It, It rubs people the wrong way. Because people want to be inclusive today. People don't want to be judgmental and everything. And yet Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father by me. That is such a radical statement in John 14, 6 that you cannot. Jesus came to divide. You're for me, you're against me. Listen to me. The majority is always wrong. And that's in God's people. (laughs) Forget the world. The majority is always wrong. Jesus said to be the only name by what, whereby men must be saved. Not should be saved, but must be saved. Act 4.12. No other name. People say, well, you know, my grandmother, she was a real nice person. Why don't you? No. Doesn't matter. Jesus. He's the only mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. First Timothy 2.5. Many of us are ex-Catholics. We had the virgin. We had the saints. We had this. We had that. Mediator. It's idolatry. One mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There's no wiggle room. No wiggle room. Our life is hidden in Christ and, and in God. And when Christ was, our life shall appear. Then we shall appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 4 through 5 says. What a glorious day that's going to be. The phrase speaks of Paul's hope of this very, very eternal life when he was about to be executed. Uh, and physically, his life was going to end and his head was going to roll. But certainly... It didn't mean death spiritually. When you hear that Xavier Reese died, don't believe it. I moved. Okay? His confidence was unshaken, knowing who he had believed and persuaded that he was able to keep that until the, that day in Second Timothy 1.12. Remember, Second Timothy, that's his last will and testament. He's going to be executed. You want to pay attention to a person who's dying, what he's going to say. He's going to give you the most important things. He's going to tell you to take the trash out on Tuesday. Okay? He's going to give you some very important things. His perception was that the instant that he died, physically, he was instantly present before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. His motto for the Philippians was to live Christ and to die as gain. Philippians 1, 6. His expectation of being found faithful was certain. 
He had fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Second Timothy 4, 6 through 8. You see, the person who makes the promises, Jesus Christ, not Paul or any other man. Jesus is God. Colossians 1, 15. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. In Him you complete. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He cannot lie, Numbers 23, 19 says, and Romans 3, 4 says. He had called Paul to be an apostle of the Gentiles. Romans eleven thirteen. In the hollow halls of institutes for advanced study in Princeton, Dr. Walter um, Stewart, an uh, economist, watched uh, several graduate students coming out of a seminar. He says, uh, how'd it go? Wonderful, the student replied. Everything we knew about physics last week isn't true this week. Man's so-called wisdom today is tomorrow's stupidity. God's word is always the same, absolute truth. The Bible has never been recalled. It's the same. Each of us as Christians who profess to know God and does not give evidence of godliness, walking in the light, does not fully understand the gospel of eternal life, or perhaps not even know God. First John 1, 5 through 7 says, This is the message we have heard from him, Christ, and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not have the truth or practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, an ongoing process. He's not talking about sinlessness. He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about being a new creature, keeping your account short, looking to Christ, and always keeping yourself in the light of Jesus Christ. Wow. Luke tells us of the rich young ruler who said to Jesus, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In Luke 18, 18. The answer is nothing. You can do nothing to gain eternal life but to believe Christ that you're a sinner and that he died for the sins of this world and call upon his name. That's it. Grace or faith. John tells us, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son has not everlasting life, and the wrath of God abides in him. John 3.36. Do you believe that? That the most moral, ethical person who doesn't know Christ, the wrath abides in him right now. That offends people. Yet it's absolute truth. The consequence of rejecting eternal life in Christ is eternal life. Where? In Gehenna. For all eternity. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, 1 Timothy 6.12. Each of us have to do this. We know we have believed what he's done for us. The possession of eternal life brings us into spiritual warfare against all that is evil, all that is ungodly, this fallen world. You are born into warfare. How's it going? You got an armor, you got weapons, you got the power of the Spirit, you got the mind of Christ. Are you giving yourself to it? Important. Jude puts it this way. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Jude one twenty one. 
the love of God, agape, is to be the abiding place of the child of God, for it will never fail him or her. Every time I have yielded to God's love, I've never failed. Every time I have resisted and I yielded, I have failed every time. Every time. Paul was the apostle of eternal life. Here you have Paul's apostleship from the three vantage points, insightful. Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul the apostle by the will of God. And Paul the apostle for eternal life. You are no different. May God use us. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you, Lord. We pray you continue to direct and guide us. You would use this place to just be a light to the community and that you would be glorified. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we pray that, Lord, you would raise up godly men and women to serve you. And, Father, you give wisdom to the husbands to be the head of their home, protect their wives, guide them and their children, and that you would bless them. Lord, we thank you. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe what I've said, what the Word of God says about you and about God, then you can call upon Him and He'll forgive you of your sins and save you and make you a child of God by grace through faith. Right where you sit, maybe you're out there on the radio, maybe you're out there on the internet, this is your prayer to Jesus Christ. He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.